Welcome to PCA One-on-One, Positive Coaching Alliance's podcast series where we talk with leading experts about how to develop better athletes, better people through sports. And now here's your host, Jim Thompson, PCA founder and CEO. Jonas Sachs is an internationally recognized storyteller, author, designer, and entrepreneur. He founded and is CEO of Free Range, a consulting firm. Uh, With Free Range, he has helped hundreds of social brands and causes break through the media din with campaigns built on sound storytelling strategies. And I'm really looking forward to talking with you about storytelling. His work on legendary viral videos like the Story of Stuff series, which is mind-boggling because it went viral, but it was like almost an hour long, has brought key social issues to the attention of more than 60 million viewers, and his interactive work has been honored with Best of Awards three times at the South by Southwest Interactive Festival, and Fast Company Magazine named him one of the 50 most influential social innovators. His book, Winning the Story Wars, released in July 2012 by Harvard Business Review Press, he uses case studies from his own work and some of the most successful brands of all time to show how values-driven stories will not only revolutionize marketing, but represent humanity's greatest hope for the future. Jonah is also a member of Positive Coaching Alliance's National Advisory Board and has spoken to PCA staff on his ideas following our making, winning the story wars, a selection of the PCA staff book club, and all of our staff read and discussed the book. He's also the father of two children, who I understand are getting into youth sports. Uh, welcome, Jonas Sachs. Thanks for having me, Jim. It's great to be here. So the title of your book, and I'm going to read the whole title, Winning the Story Wars, Why Those Who Tell and Live the Best Stories Will Rule the Future, is provocative. Tell me what you mean by story wars. Are stories that important? Yeah, I'm, when I say story wars, I mean that all around us we're surrounded by stories of different ways of making sense of the, of the world. And they are so important because our world is complex and the decisions that we make are not based on measuring all the data that comes our way, but making sense of the, the small amount of data that we can actually focus on. And we make our choices and our votes and our beliefs and spend our money based on who we think we are and who we want to be. And those types of things have always been driven by the stories that we believe, that we tell. Um, That's how we create our identity and always have as human beings. So because stories are so important, they they control how we make sense of our world, um, the stakes are high. And when the stakes are high, you know, you find wars breaking out. So stories about what is America about, stories about what's the best brand of sneaker to wear, stories about what does it mean to be an athlete and a winner. Um, those things are, uh, there are many of those stories out there, and they compete with each other, and the ones that win tend to create the next uh, generation of our society and, and decide where we're going. I, um, I want to get into that, uh, the, the, the macro idea of storytelling. But first, let me just say, I think the best coaches have always been good storytellers. What makes a, a coach, in particular, a great storyteller? I think, first of all, that uh, a great storyteller knows what the moral of their story is. They know not just how to tell a compelling tale, but they they, they stand for a core truth that other people say, yeah, that's my truth too. And then they know how to bring that truth to life, not by standing up on a soapbox and yelling it, 
but by bringing forth examples from their own experience, from the experience of mentors they've had, from the experience of what they've learned from young people to really illustrate that that truth is true. And when people hear stories about others experiencing the world, they say, hey, that could be me too. So when, when a coach knows what he or she stands for and knows how to bring real-world examples and emotion into it as opposed to just shouting it at a bunch of kids, those kids will hear those stories and, and say, yeah, that, that can be my truth too. And when a team shares a moral of the story, when a team shares a truth about how it wants to be and live in the world, uh, then you really have something going where, where you're, you're working in joint purpose. And stories have always been based on human values. So I think as coaches really understand the values they stand for, the values they're trying to instill in young people, and then how together everything we do plays those values out, uh, you know, sports becomes a lot more than just a game. It becomes a, a, a place to learn to be a better person. Well, I love what you – one of the things – I love that whole statement, but you said uh, when a team shares the truth, the way they want to live and be in the world – Wow, that's that's really powerful because I think so often um, there's a there's a term in psychology called threat rigidity. The idea being that if we're trying to, to uh, operate in a new way or a better way, but then we get threatened, we tend to become rigid and go back to the old way. And competition tends to rigidify people, so they don't necessarily uh, live out the way they want to live in the world. Absolutely. Well, my fellow uh, PCA um, advisory board member and spokesman, Phil Jackson, you know, he, he just nails this completely in a story that he tells and that I often retell because I think it's such a perfect example of a coach using a story to get beyond that rigidity. And, I, and I'm sure you've heard it from him before, but, but he talks about how the Bulls, when they were going up against the Pistons and they, they constantly were losing and the Pistons had their number because even though the Bulls were better, the Pistons knew how to make them angry. And the, and the Bulls were a bunch of guys who grew up, many of them, in tough neighborhoods. And they thought, well, when it, to be a man means to fight back when you're threatened. And the Pistons knew this and they would just threaten them and get them angry and the Bulls would fight back and they wouldn't play their game. And then Jackson, uh, who was a member of the Lakota Sioux tribe who had been you know, initiated into this tribe, told them a story about how the Lakota Sioux, when they were going into combat, would thank the Great Spirit for their enemies, because without their enemies, they'd never learn to be great warriors. And he changed the moral of the story. The moral of the story was not a man fights fire with fire. The moral of the story becomes a man learns to love his enemies, a warrior learns to love his enemies. And the, you know, the bulls heard that, and he didn't just get up on a soapbox, like I said before, and say that. He told them a story. And now they could identify as warriors, but a different kind of warrior. And, and Jackson says, you know, after he told that story, they went on to win uh, that, that playoff series against the Pistons, win their first championship, and they never lost to them again while Jackson was the coach of the Bulls in, in a postseason series. And that's just a perfect example, right, that he's instilling new values in the team, and that doesn't make them necessarily uh, lose focus on being winners. It actually helps them become winners, but it helps them become better people, too. And I think it's just a beautiful story and an example of how competition can drive us to actually be better people, not just more frightened people. It, it is a lovely story. Um, you know, I think you're talking about integrity. You know, you talk about it's not just standing up on a soapbox and screaming it out, but mm. what you say and how you behave, um, they match up, and that that gives you authority and, and credibility. Yeah, and that goes, you know, you read, the, you read the long title of my book at the beginning, and that goes to the second part of the title, which is why those who tell and live the best stories will rule the future. And it, it really is true that 
to be a great storyteller means that you, uh, it's not just what you say, but you tell these stories and you listen to them yourself and you strive to live them yourself, uh, especially with young people. You know, I'm a parent now and it, I know so much that my kids are getting the information about who I am and what I stand for, not so much by what I tell them, but, but how I act in front of them every single day. And I think with a coach, it's the same thing. Um, you know, you, you have to identify what you stand for and you need to signal that in how you make treat every interaction and not just in what you say. But I think the great thing about that is that um, once you identify the story that you want to make your own, um, it opens up a kind of a developmental path for yourself as well as your team. And I think that's very exciting. I, I use that concept with brands quite a bit. You know, if you want to be a company uh, that's telling a very positive story about the world, you better be a very positive company on the inside and how you're treating your workers, the environment, et cetera. But I think the same goes for someone who's leading a team. Um, it's a path to personal integrity. Yeah, I, one of our uh, recent hires a year or two ago, he uh, he went home and told his wife, "Wow, everybody's so nice, everybody's so positive," and, and she said, "Well, if if an organization's name is Positive Coaching Alliance, don't they have to be have to be nice?" <laughs> Absolutely not. You know? Absolutely not. <laughs> that is like I can't tell you the times I walk into an organization with that kind of thing, and everyone walks out, you know, smiling and shaking their heads and saying. You know, that was the least positive place I've ever been. So uh, it is not uncommon for an organization to be working incredibly hard out in the world to be something uh, that they're not internally. And, I, you know, I have to say about PCA, um, it is amazing how those values are lived every day inside the organization, from my experience, as well as what you're projecting in the world. And that, you know, that's an amazing accomplishment in my mind. Yeah, I know the last time we uh, talked to each other was a few weeks ago at our national awards dinner, and I really appreciated what you said about how friendly everybody was. And, uh, of course, you were, you're kind of a celebrity with Positive Coaching Alliance because you did uh, you did come and, you know, we all read your book, and then you came and gave a, a seminar. Um, and so people remembered you, and they remember your ideas. Well, it, it's definitely going to take a very positive community to see me as a celebrity, so I, uh, I appreciate that. <laughs> You know, I was thinking this idea about um, integrity and and standing for a core truth, et cetera. Um, I was thinking about the movie that a lot of people today don't haven't seen or don't remember, but Chariots of Fire. Did you ever see Chariots of Fire? Long time ago, yeah. Yeah. So Eric Little, the Scottish runner, uh, who was very religious, very um, spiritual, and he refused to run on Sunday. And uh, you know, the the race that he was preparing to run for in the 1924 Olympics was scheduled for Sunday and they actually brought the the Duke of Wales the future king in to try to get him to change his mind and he wouldn't do it and afterwards there's this great line where the Duke of Wales is saying something like um I uh, you know in a way I'm glad he said no because I think he gets his strength from what he believes and if he had violated his you know, his sense of who he was to run on Sunday, he might not have been as fast. Mm, that's very interesting. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I think it's interesting the way that religion plays into a lot of sports stories as well. Um, maybe there's a bit of a side note, but but it seems like uh, the, the paradigm in sports is like either you're a uh, insane competitor or you're a very religious person and you don't participate in the in insanity. And those are the two sides of what we see of a lot of professional athletes, perhaps. Like the, the, the only real model we have of serenity are people who, who thank God after the games. And, um, 
And I think it's interesting to think about, you know, how do you create that uh, that attitude towards sports open to everybody? So it's not just the religious players um, and the religious athletes who take that kind of serene approach, but how do we make that accessible to everyone? Yeah, yeah, big idea. You know, um, you said, and I really love this, that the marketer's job is to get people to say, when they hear the, the, the company that's marketing to them, they hear their story, it's to get people to say, ah, that's my story. Yeah. Um, and I, I was wondering, as this is this may be an unfair question, but as an athlete and, and budding sports parent, uh, has Positive Coaching Alliance, any of the stuff we've uh, shared with you, has ever gotten you to say, ah, that's my story as an athlete or as a sports parent or as a coach? Yeah, so I'm a, an assistant coach on a uh, Shetland baseball team, so five year, five and six-year-old. And uh, I, when I signed up to be an assistant coach, I got a, a response from the league that if I want to step on the field, I have to take a, a PCA course. So I was actually very pleased to see that. And I, I went and did the, did the course. And uh, it really did tie into my story and change my story in some ways. Even though I, I know about you guys, I've worked with you guys, I'm on the advisory board, being on that experience of being forced by the league uh, to take the course and know that every other coach had, had been exposed to the exact same thing just got me to be extremely reflective on what my experience was as a baseball player as a child. Um, it got me to really think about the amazing amount of stress, uh, the, all the kind of yelling, all of the messages that I got from coaches, uh, from parents. Um, and, and, and even though I loved the game, recognizing that there was, there was no adult on the field who had any sense of why we were there. Um, who could give us a, a picture of what what really the, our goals were as a team, um, and it and as I became older and older and got to higher levels of competition in baseball, it really did lose a lot of the fun um, because I don't think I think I ha I had lost my way and I had a sense that the people around me had lost their way too around what we were there to do, and so it actually was funny when I went out onto the field for the first time with the five year old, um, I talked to the head coach on the team and I said you know. The way that I was raised playing this game is so different than what we're trying to do now and what we're all out here to do. I think I'm going to have to be quiet for the first practice. I'm not sure I'm going to say anything. I just want to <laughs> listen and observe. I, don't, I think if I open my mouth, I'm going to start shouting like all my old coaches. And, uh, and so I did. I didn't say anything for a little while. And, um, and I just reflected on what kind of coach I wanted to be and, um, you know, the double goal model and, and, the, and the sense that not only was I there with, the, with that model in my head, but that... Every other adult had been through that. Just was enormously powerful and comforting, and I felt like, yeah, this is gonna, this is gonna give us a common language to talk about what we're here to do. And um, I think that's great. I think it's, it's, it really was great. You know, uh, that makes me think of uh, another quote of yours that I really like. Is um, you talk about uh, when a person embraces their own story and you know has a, a moral or a value to live up to. Uh, the pressure to live up to your own story can be a transformational force. Um, mm. And, you know, I think of um, very early on with Positive Coach Alliance, we came up with the double goal coach model. And then later, the triple impact competitor model, make yourself better, your teammates better, and the game better. Um, and it occurs to me as we're talking here that um, if we can get people to say, you know, the double goal coach 
is my story, the triple impact competitor is who I want to be, then that's really the key to our ability to, to reach our goal, which is to transform the culture of youth sports. Any, uh, any thoughts about that? Yeah. Um, you know, first of all, I think that, uh, you know, great stories tend to resonate with us, make us think, you know, hey, that's I'm – I'm, I'm sort of learning something from this story, but I, I always kind of believe it and didn't know how to say it. And so you're not taking someone, you're shifting them 180 degrees, you're opening their eyes to a, a way that feels natural to them and right. And I, I do think that so many people who are involved in youth sports um, – have had experiences similar to mine where something feels wrong with the old way. They don't know a new way. And when they hear it, they say, ah, that is, that's what I've been hoping for. And so I, I never conceived that the world needed PCA. I never thought about it much, much at all. And when then I got involved with, with PCA, I was like, wow, this is something that, that needs to happen. And this is something that, that aligns perfectly with my values. So I, I don't think it's a big uphill climb for a lot of um, you know, for a lot of coaches and a lot of parents to say this, this makes a lot of sense. It's, it's meeting a problem that we all know we have. It doesn't mean it's easy to raise money for. It doesn't mean it's easy to scale. But it does mean that I think you've got a, a choir that's ready to sort of sing along with you, and that's great. I think also it's very much in line with um, kind of cultural renegotiation that's going on right now about what it, what, what it means um, to be a successful person, what it means to be a, a winner, what it means to be a coach. Um, I think you're starting to see more of these new model professional coaches being extremely successful in the world. Uh, many of them are already involved with PCA, so it, it doesn't seem like a trade-off or a soft kind of science. It's some of the people we most admire are, are behind this idea. But also, um, you know, we are in a difficult cultural moment where defining masculinity, defining femininity, defining competition and cooperation are all kind of up for grabs. And I know that a lot of people in, within PCA talk about the, you know, do we have to choose between um, cutthroat competition and um, everybody gets a trophy for everything they do kind of thing. Uh, and I think there's just a lot of people who are, who are trying to find, well, what is the answer between those extremes? Uh, I did notice that on my team, uh, I, I, there was a moment we were about to go on the field and I had to ask the kids to tuck their shirts in. And they, these five- and six-year-olds look up at me as if, you know, no adult had ever told them anything like this before that wasn't their parent. Even their parent <laughs> probably never told them anything like this before. And they looked at me like, who are you to tell me to tuck my shirt in? And, you know, I realized, like, you know, in our world that there, that, that might be a moment where a lot of adults would back off. And be like, all right, you guys just, you know, be yourselves. Do whatever you want. But this is a good moment for me to, like, be like, hey, I'm the adult here, and there are rules in this world, and you got to tuck your shirt in but to do so in a way that wasn't, you know, barking at them and yelling at them. And just all of that, I think, as parents, we're dealing with all the time. How do we provide discipline and structure and still be incredibly loving and supportive? And um, there's a big gap there, and I think sports can fill that gap, and I think uh, that PCA can guide sports to filling that gap. That, that, that's, that, that's so cool. I, uh, I, I, taught, I coached high school girls basketball for a, few, a couple years, and um, – I don't even know where I got this idea, but when we had a game, either a home game or away game, I wanted my girls to dress up. And initially it was like, oh, man, we never had to do that before. Um, but then they did, and they kind of got into it. And I was really excited because at the end of the year – and the other thing was um, – 
I, the, I, I use this concept of strong and beautiful. That you, you know, you're not either beautiful as a woman or you're strong. You're strong and beautiful. And at the end of the year, they gave me a. Uh, a picture of themselves, all of them dressed in these evening gowns, uh, flexing their arm muscles, and underneath it says "strong and beautiful." And I was like, "Yes, that's a, that's a, But but again, it was like asking them to dress up for a, a game was uh, was asking them, I think, to be part of their not just be themselves, but be their best self, and that's what you're doing with your your five year olds. Yeah, definitely. You you um you said in your book and uh, that you feel the world is broken. Well, uh, will you say something about what you mean by that? Sure. Um, so I, I use the work of Joseph Campbell, a great mythologist, uh, the guy who kind of invented or identified the pattern of the hero's journey um, <clears throat> to to kind of describe the myths and the stories that we've always we've always worked towards and we've always told. And he uses this concept of the broken world, which is essentially um, a world that the hero always starts out in, right? So the hero is someone who has deeply held values but doesn't exactly see those values reflected in the world around him or her. And this hero is often an unlikely hero, so like a slave or a a hobbit or an orphan, an old person, right? So like not the kind of person who's going to change the world. And they see something that's not right with the world. And um, they go on this journey to actually heal the world. It's the kind of the, the pattern. So when I say the world is broken, I don't actually mean that we've arrived at a place where reality is falling apart or we're at a low point in human civilization or for the planet. I mean more that um, we are living in a time, as in all times, where uh, justice and truth and um, and prosperity are still ideals and things that we, we, we intuitively feel we want to help. Many of us feel we want to devote our lives to bringing forth more of those things in, in the world. And so it's that sort of unsatisfying state that makes us human and say we think we can do better. Um, so that's, that to me is the broken world. Uh, so there's, there's no point at which we don't look at a situation and say I have something to offer and make it and make it better. So we might say that the world of, of, of youth sports is broken, and I think that um, you know that's undeniably true. That we can get to a higher a higher state with it, and it's, it's a great time right now for renegotiation around it. Does it mean that it's a fundamentally awful place? No, but I think we we it just it's, it's our ability to see opportunities that uh, allow us to always see the world as as imperfect. Yeah, when that's that's beautiful. When you we talk about broken in that way, the the word that comes at mind or the phrase that comes to mind is that we have to fight for what we believe in. We have to fight for justice, and we have to fight for what's what's beautiful in youth sports because it doesn't just necessarily happen by itself. Yes, I think that's right. I mean, so so when I named my book uh, "Winning the Story Wars." Uh, there's a lot of people who came to me and said, you know, why do you have to use a war metaphor? You know, do we want to get everyone out there fighting more wars? And, um, and you know, I certainly can see that, you know, we don't have to think of ourselves as, as soldiers in everything that we do. And that, that may not be helpful, for instance, in, in certain sports environments. But I think that when you look at the, the myths and the stories that have always driven us, we often do talk about, you know, slaying dragons, overcoming, you know, the, the armies of darkness. We love to see and hear these kinds of stories. Um, because in many ways, uh, you know, mythologists posit and Carl Jung posited that, that these are stories really about overcoming um, the dark forces within ourselves. And that's what Star Wars obviously is all about. 
um, where it's like complacency, laziness, accepting the status quo, selfishness, greed, those are all within all of us. And there's this battle going on that we can use stories to get ourselves out of bed, to be more altruistic, to uh, be better mentors, to give back more. That's like the real war in many ways that's going on. It's not so much about going out there and killing all the bad guys. It's about waking up every morning and being willing to commit yourself to being a better person. And that's where stories can really help. So that's some, some way that I see that I see war. And, you know, I, I think that, uh, you know, you guys have done a good job with your story in that you could easily go out and highlight all the horrible co- youth coaches out there and talk about the big enemy of all these misguided and, you know, ignorant people. But, but that's really not the messaging that you're putting out there. It's not, it's not you versus the world. It's really, you know, PCA versus the inherent challenges that we all face as coaches. And I think that, that makes a more effective story. Yeah, well, um, the oh man, you, you said so many things I want to follow up on. Let's let's start with myths. Um, yeah. Myths are really important in your work, and you you wrote that myths are the glue that hold a society together, providing an indispensable meaning-making function. And then you said there's a myth gap. Uh, what do you mean by a myth gap um, in general? And then I want to ask about you sports in Pacific, but what do you, what what do you mean about by, by a myth myth gap? Yeah, so the idea that myths hold society together is certainly not certainly not my idea, and it's an idea that comes from uh, anthropologists and you know and social scientists when they say that societies basically have core meaning stories that they tell each other and retell each other. Um, you know, the American dream is a myth. The story of Genesis is a myth. And, and I don't say that to say that it's not true, but I mean it, it, it kind of gives us meaning and purpose and it takes place long ago and far away. It's a sort of mythical construct that gives us a sense of who we are. And all societies have been held together by these core stories. And there's a, there's a belief that you won't find any society with no shared myths. Now, in the 20th century, when world wars were breaking out and science was replacing religion and we were becoming a multi-ethnic, multicultural, globalized world, uh, it is true that a lot of the core stories that, that held our society and you know, certainly the United States together began to lose some of their power. They, they had existed for a long time and some of the things, the core meaning stories were starting to fall apart. And that creates a myth gap. When the old explanations no longer make sense, when, when stories that we want told and retold just don't quite feel right anymore, it opens up a space to renegotiate and it opens up a space to come up with new stories. So, you know, the, there became a myth gap around cowboys and Indians, for instance, in the mid-20th century. You know, was it really it, during, uh, during Vietnam, at the beginning of that war, it was really sold as like, we're the cowboys and we're fighting the Indians. And by the end of the, that war, suddenly America no longer believed the Cowboys were the good guys and the Indians were the bad guys. And we saw this, we even saw in advertising quite a few ads that played off of that changing story. Um, you know, the, the, there have been many changing stories about, about, for instance, the American dream now. And is that something that's sort of accessible to everybody or do we need a new story, a new way of seeing it? That, that story is not making sense in the same way that if you just work hard and do your best, you're going to get rich in this country. There's a renegotiation around that story. So um, wherever the old stories don't make sense, people are going to be interested to hear new ones. And uh, I guess, yeah, like I said before, I do think in youth sports there is a, there is a missed gap. There is that, uh, that military style, top-down control, hyper-discipline, uh, competitive idea that that's what it takes to win. I think for all kinds of reasons we're recognizing 
you know, in some ways that might be connected to the old mechanized economy approach, right? Like that's good for assembly lines and uh, for, uh, you know, for the big corporate, corporate careers that used to exist, the command and control. That was how work worked. So that's obviously how sports should work too. Um, but I think that there are now when we see creativity and, um, and teamwork and all kinds of uh, renegotiations of what success means uh, and what it takes to be successful in the marketplace of ideas being changed and parenting ideals have changed quite a bit. Um, I do think that, that that old method of coaching doesn't quite make sense anymore. And, and you know, like I said before, gender uh, renegotiations are happening. We don't necessarily see our coach as the old white-haired guy fitting tobacco. You know, it could be Many, many women are becoming coaches now. Young, younger people are becoming coaches. Um, people who are not necessarily the, you know, even the story of uh, uh, Billy Bean in Oakland, you know, overthrowing all the old scouts who thought they knew how the game worked and actually science teaches us something else about how games work, about how, how recruiting works. I think all those things bring into question what makes a winner and what makes a team and what's it all for. And um, this is a time to fill that gap with, with new thought leadership. And I think that's what, what, that's what PCA is doing. You know, um, you talk about it seems like when when there is a, a myth gap and there aren't, you know, the the old myths. And, and again, you know, we're not talking about um, myths being something that's false, but but a story that we live by um, when the myths, the old myths don't work. We're not believing in them anymore. Um, then it's up for grabs. What's what's the new story going to be? What's the new myth? And you talk about the dark art of marketing. Uh, which endeavors to make consumption the highest human purpose, and you you contrast uh, being a citizen with being a consumer. Um, what do we? What do you feel like we lose as a species if we come to see ourselves primarily as consumers? Um, you know, I use that idea basically to explain how we went from being this sort of thrift-based society, and you know, in Puritan work ethic society to being this massive consumer society and advertising really did that. It wasn't about how much you could save and how uh, frugal you could be. It something was about how much you could consume and how much you could have. And and at that time, brands became the sort of heroes of our myths. You know, if you smoked Marlboro cigarettes, you would be like a cowboy. If you used this product, you'd be beautiful. If you drove this car, you'd be successful. Um, we came to like create our identities not by who we were in our communities and what we offered and what values we lived by. We created our identities instead by the, the things that we could go to the market to buy. Um, and what do we lose? I mean, we one, I think we do lose, lose a sense of purpose and a sense of what makes us human when we think, you know, that life is about obtaining as much stuff as possible. Um, we certainly created a, a sustainability crisis when life becomes about consuming as much of the planet's resources as you possibly can. Uh, and that's a big problem that we now face is, you know, we can't stop buying more and more stuff to fill that, that identity in ourselves because of the stories that we're consuming. Um, and I, I think on a deeper level, we lose a sense of, of agency in our own lives. Um, we it, it puts us in a more kind of infantile state. Campbell said the hero's journey story is told to make anybody believe they can be a hero in their own life. And basically, if you are always creating your identity through consumption and brands and status, um, it's hard to think about how you are really, it doesn't make you want to dig deep, do the hard thing, 
make the sacrifice, uh, give up something to get to, to, to give to somebody else, that really makes us a hero. And that's like basically what the stories are about. Those are the, the myths that we love and that we still go to see in the movies are about somebody doing something very difficult, about making a sacrifice, about putting their life on the line, um, doing something really they don't want to do for the sake of someone else. That's kind of a basic, basic uh, formula of, of, of heroes. So I think, you know, it's important to think about, you know, and, and gain meaning from, from more heroic action rather than consumer action. And uh, all the happiness uh, science now shows basically that people are not happier by making more money and having more stuff and spending more money. They are happier by living among people they care about and having meaningful human connections. Yeah. Um, you know, I was thinking about the humans as consumers and how that has impacted youth sports. Um, I, I grew up in a small town in North Dakota, and I mean very small, like 100 people, Colfax, North Dakota. And the, the town had a men's baseball team that played baseball against Abercrombie and Morton and the other the other little towns around. And the kids played baseball, and it was just there weren't, there weren't any adults telling us what to do. Um, and I feel like one of the um, one of the changes that's not necessarily been for the best is how adult-driven youth sports is now. And sometimes I think that parents who get so caught up in their kids' uh, success or failure, it would be great if they went out for an adult uh, volleyball league or something and, and uh, did that rather than putting all their energy into their kids' sports. Yeah. Yeah, I mean – there is definitely a maybe this is another myth gap or cultural story that's emerging, but you know there is definitely a desire in our society for everyone to feel exceptional and to feel special and um and parents I think get very wrapped up in the idea that their kid is is different and special, and that can be shown by their accomplishments on the field and uh the idea that they went out, they had a good time, they're learning something. Um, they're getting exercise, they're participating on a team, is all you know, intellectually available to all of us and we get it, but we really just deep down are now kind of in this place where it's like, um, my kid is different and my kid's the best and my kid, and even if I know it's not true, acknowledge it with a, with a gift or a trophy or some consumer product that he can, he can have to show that he's special or at least make him think he's special. And, I, you know, Carol Dweck, who's also involved in PCA, has just shown uh, through her research so clearly that telling people that you're special and you're naturally good uh, and you're talented is such a hindrance to actually achievement and to, and to growth. And telling somebody that it actually is hard and you've got to work hard and it's all about your grit and mindset to, to achieve even when you feel you can't. Uh, and no one's going to reward you for, being, um, for trying halfway. Uh, that's, that's what the science says. We know that to be true now, and yet uh, the more consumer mindset really is, you know, hey, you gave a 20% effort, here's a 100% reward, because, you know, because, hey, everybody's special. And the truth is, like, everybody is special because we're all human beings, and that's a kind of a miraculous thing to be. Um, but we go a little too far, I think, in this whole investment in specialness. I think... Um discomfort is 
is a really big, uh, big problem. Like we don't want to discomfort ourselves. And uh, you know, the hero's journey is you connect with something bigger than yourself, and that often means you have to get really scared <laughs> and uh, plow through it anyway. You have to sacrifice something for someone else. Um, and often it's like, oh, man, it's so much easier just to go home and watch the game on TV. Uh, um, well, I mean, yep. making our kids uncomfortable is even scarier, right? Like, you know, how can a parent who doesn't want to put themselves out bear to put their kids through any kind of difficulty? Yeah. You know, um, we, we talked about your term, the dark art of marketing, and, and kind of contrasted with that is what you call empowerment marketing. Um, can you say a little bit about what empowerment marketing is? Yeah, so the dark art, that's kind of a little title I give to what, what might be more directly called inadequacy marketing, which is basically uh, yep. without your favorite brand or product, you're not good enough, you're not strong enough, you're not safe enough, you don't have enough status. And empowerment marketing is really not look how great our brand or thing is, but look how great you can be. And so, you know, advertising campaigns that say more is possible, that say reach for your ideals, um, and, you know, and there have been some brands and corporations that have done a great job with it, you know, so uh, the, the orthodoxy on Madison Avenue is make, make products make life easy, make sure your products seem to make life easier. And then Nike comes along in the 90s and says, no, achievement's incredibly hard. We're not going to make life easier for you. We're going um, to be there to cheer you on as you fail and get up and try again. And people are like, wow, what a, you know, what a brand. Um, Obama in 2008, he didn't say he's going to fix America for America. He said, it's going to take all of us. It's going to take hard work. Yes, we can. You know, so those are the kind of empowerment uh, marketing. You know, of course, Nike ran into all kinds of problems living that story, a positive story out. Obama's run into problems, you know, delivering on that promise of everyone working together. But uh, in terms of the stories that we immerse each other in, uh, the more we can tell people that you're full of promise and potential, the more... Uh, people will be willing to strive. And the more that you tell people you're basically helpless and in trouble and threatened, uh, the more we're going to have a, a society of people who basically behave as, you know, that don't vote, that don't become civically engaged, that don't do the hard things because they're being told constantly that they can't. You know, I, I want to go back to your, your story about Phil Jackson with the Bulls and the, the Pistons and um, the Lakota Sioux and, and, uh, what, one of the things he was doing in that story, I think, and what great leaders often do, is they say to their followers, um, you can be better than you are, and actually, you have to be better than you are. So it's like, um, you shouldn't have to uh, respond, you shouldn't have to ignore uh, your opponents when they talk trash, when they play dirty, etc. But you can, and you 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 know to 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 be be the person you want to be you have to be uh and I, you know this is this is called maturing and and becoming uh you know a, a grown up you have to be better than you are better than maybe even than you think you can be and it seems like great coaches have always been able to get kids to see wow i could i could really be something if i work at it you know yeah that reminds me a little bit of uh something that I've been noticing and learning, which is that Phil, in that case, was trying to take his players out at, um, 
out of that victim mindset that I think so many people get into, whether in their lives and especially with their kids and sports, where um, you look at what's happening in your life and you say, oh, man, if that person or that system or that thing was not there, I'd be successful. And all that energy that goes into being angry and, and externalizing your problems to someone else takes away from your ability to overcome them. So, uh, you know, Phil says, look, the Pistons are going to kick you, they're going to punch you, but that, that doesn't stop you from being great. You know, that's their problem, that's not your problem. And so I notice in sports a lot of times, you know, kids even turning against their coaches or their team, you know, my, team, I, my fielders weren't good enough, I wasn't getting the ball enough, I'm not getting enough playing time. Um, and I've even, I've even had that as I've gone forward in my life, thinking back on some of these coaches that I didn't like and I didn't feel good about um, and felt like they weren't using me the right way. And thinking, you know, maybe those, all that energy spent on externalizing my problems really could have been spent making myself better and not worrying about anybody else but playing my best game. And so I think that there may be something to really be learned in that, um, in that sort of victim versus empowered mindset that we can take to sports. Yeah, for sure. One of my favorite ideas of yours is the brand gift. Uh, could you talk about what you mean by a brand gift? Sure. So, I mean, I, I, like I said, I kind of use that hero's journey metaphor to think about brands. And uh, in the in the hero's journey, there's really two main characters besides the, the dragon. There's, there's the hero, and then there's the mentor, you know, Obi-Wan Kenobi or the fairy godmother, God in the story of Moses. Um, and this mentor character, basically their main job is to say so much more as possible, like we're talking about. You, you've got a great destiny. And the hero, because the hero is an outsider, it's not a knight in shining armor, the hero is like, well, so what's my destiny? And the mentor will say, you know, you've got to go into this super dangerous world, you're going to fight a dragon, you're probably going to get killed. And the hero says, no way, I'm definitely not doing that. That's crazy. And then the mentor says, well, I'm going to give you something, a magic gift. Because I'm, I can't come with you on this journey. I can't do it for you. But here's uh, the force or here's the ruby red slippers or, you know, something that's going to make you see that you've got uh, some magic on your side. And I think what, without, in terms of brands, um, they can't just say, hey, we have the same values as you do and, hey, we believe in you and, hey, go, go live your best life. They do have to offer you something that makes that difficult journey seem possible. So... Um, you know, we, we we might go to the example of, of Apple when they were in their early years and they were saying, well, a computer is not just a tool to make your life easier. A computer is a tool for creative self-expression. You know, this is one of those higher level values. You can express yourself and create beauty and truth through a machine. And people were like, that's a very cool idea. I like it. But the gift was they added this, this reality that their machines actually themselves were beautiful. It's substantiated. Not, it's not just I'm calling you to do this, but here is a beautiful machine where every other machine was a beige box. Here's a beautifully designed machine that can bring that story to life. So um, a gift can be something like you know, design. A gift can be um, you know, when Obama was calling people to support him as a dark horse candidate. It sounded great. seemed impossible. But wait a minute. He understood the Internet when no other candidate did, so people believed it was possible. Um, so what is that thing that, as, when you have a brand, what is that thing that you, you know, might have once be called, been called the unique selling proposition? You know, what makes you unique? What are you really giving to people? Um, you know, is PCA giving, you know, the double, is, is double goal kind of model? Is that, is that the thing you want to say, that can make this journey possible? Or is it, you know, something else? Um, 
but what is it that people carry around as that gift that they've received from the brand? And defining that uh, is one of the keys to creating a powerful brand in my mind. So I want to put you on the spot here. Uh, a lot of the people who are going to be listening to this are going to be coaches and parents and athletes and, and you sports leaders. So um, you, Jonas Sachs, I just hired you to be the athletic director of a high school. Um, what would you want your brand gift to be to the kids playing in your program? Um, you know, maybe this is in a, you know, okay, so just to, off the top of my head, maybe it's the idea that we were talking about before of grit, for instance, you know, to borrow from Carol Dweck, that um, I want to teach everybody how, not just that it's possible to get better, but really how it's done by, by having that, by the practice of failing and letting yourself do those things that you're not good at and then seeing yourself get better at them. And what are those tools to build grit? And if everybody starts, you know, repeating that idea, um, and maybe that's the right word, maybe it's, you know, maybe it needs to be contextualized more. Um, but I, I found, for instance, in my experience with sports, that, that I started out as the worst kid on the team and I wanted to quit. And my dad said, you know, you can't quit. you got to stick something through. So I decided to stick baseball through and, you know, learn through that process how to get good at something even when it's hard. And so maybe that's the kind of thing that I would want to bring to a youth sports program is this idea that, you know, failure is great if we learn from it. And um, not being the best is not as important as working towards being the best and getting people to really shift that mindset from I'm only going to do the things that I know I'm good at to I'm going to try to do the things that are harder because that's how I grow. So if you can inculcate that into an entire community of athletes, uh, and, and I know that PCA does, you know, does that with like you know rewarding effort versus rewarding talent and you know that that's all part of that rewarding most biggest improvements and the most hustle and all that stuff. So I I get a word that everyone is repeating that they're building ritual around that they're specifically rewarding and I get that on everybody's list. Um, maybe it's grit, maybe it's something else uh, that lets us know what we value in this community, which is not just wins and losses, but it's about development. You know that's that's lovely. I was just thinking about um, when I when I wrote a book years ago about my high school uh, basketball coaching experience. Um, I wrote a chapter called "The Entwinement of Effort and Enjoyment" because what I realized is the times when I worked really hard on something was often looking back the times when I felt like God, I was the most happiest when I was when I was yeah. working on that. And um, yeah. I, I read something from uh, you know Dacher Keltner of the Greater Good Science Center uh, at uh, University of California, Berkeley. I just did a podcast there with him a while back. And um, one of the elements of happiness is um, when you feel like you're improving uh, at something. And I read this great quote by, uh, it's, it was done many years ago, Pablo Casals, the, the cellist. And he was in his 80, you know, 85 years old or maybe even older, and he was still practicing six hours a day. And somebody asked him, you know, like, you're the greatest cellist ever, you know, why are you practicing so much? And he said, I feel like I'm making some improvement. <laughs> and that idea that, uh, and that's part of Carol Dweck's, you know, the growth mindset is you can get better if you work at it. And and that's fun. That's Well, maybe fun's not the right word, but that, that effort is enjoyable. Uh, it's not just, hey, I'm going to work hard and it's kind of distasteful when I'm going to do it, and then I'm going to, uh, you know, have a vacation and have fun. That, no, the effort itself is is enjoyable. Yeah. 
Yeah, I'm nearly certain at this point in my life, as I've as I've matured, that um, that we have basically uh, some sort of internal gauge that is um, that's attuned not towards level of achievement, but towards progress um, or you know speed of progress or, or progress or whatever the opposite of progress is. Words escaping me. So that if you're at a one out of ten at something, but you're moving up to a one point five out of ten at something, or you know your life is it's satisfying at 3 out of 10, but you feel you're getting to that 4 out of 10, um, that is the key to happiness far more than being stable at a 9 out of 10 at something or being at a 10 out of 10 but think you might be slipping to a 9.5. Um, I'm, I'm almost certain <laughs> that, that it is not about absolutely where you are, but it's about whether you're making forward progress or not that triggers us to believe a, a sense of well-being. Um, so... That I take that very much to, to, to not think that I'm going to ever arrive at some destination, but, you know, how am I getting better? Yeah, I, uh, I, it's one of the reasons I, I love the uh, the sports, individual effort sports, uh, swimming, cross-country, et cetera, where, um, you know, you could get beaten by a long, a long amount and, but you're you're three seconds better than you were before, and, and you're still yeah. feeling like, wow, I'm I'm getting better. Whereas like baseball or softball, for example, you're playing against a a team with a really good pitcher. Uh, you could be playing your at your very top of your game, but the pitcher is so good that you don't notice it. So I think coaches who are in uh, you know in sports where you have a dominant player like a pitcher, it's really hard harder to show how kids are improving. Jonah, um, this has been fabulous. Um, I feel like we could go on for another hour, and someday we will. Um, but um, I want to thank you for your important work. I think it's just it's just really important, and PCA has benefited from it. And I also want to thank you for your support of the PCA movement and being part of our National Advisory Board. Well, I'm, I'm honored to be a part of it. I, I, I do feel that you guys and we together are filling a very important, um, a very important space in our culture, and I'm I'm really bought into the idea that we're going to make a better a better world by developing better athletes and uh, and people through that process. So I'm I'm honored to be part of it. Thanks for joining us on this episode of PCA One on One. Be sure to visit positivecoach.org to download more podcasts.